0: I'm reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Dear Father, we thank you for the amazing blessings that we who believe in Jesus Christ enjoy because of his sacrifice in our place. But we pray that your word would pierce our hearts by the working of your spirit within us so that our gratitude would be turned into action. Grant us clear understanding of what it means to walk according to the spirit that we may put to death the deeds of the flesh and live in a manner that is pleasing to you And that's worthy of our calling as children of the King of Kings. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In any war that qualifies as a war rather than a mere skirmish, those who are on the winning side will experience a measure of real and painful struggle in the battle before the victory is realized. The struggle is hard and the cost may be very great, but for those who are indeed on the winning side, the victory comes. As we saw last week, we who have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ are engaged in an ongoing war. The outcome of that war was determined from before the foundation of the world, and we who belong to Jesus Christ are indeed on the winning side. But sometimes the battle is fierce, and it may at times feel like we're losing. Nonetheless, the outcome is still certain. While we will not fully lay hold of the victory that Christ has secured for us until the day we stand glorified in his presence, he intends for us to experience a great measure of real victory even now even in the midst of the battle. Now, last week we saw what Paul had to say about the spiritual warfare in which every believer is engaged. On the one side is the law of sin, which is part and parcel of our old nature, the nature from which we were delivered by Christ. But that law of sin is still, according to Paul, resident in our physical bodies. On the other side is the law of God, that resides in the inner man the new regenerate man this morning and next week we'll see what paul has to say about how we realize victory in that battle even though the war is not yet finished this side of heaven and we'll see that the one who makes us to experience genuine victory in our struggle against sin is the Holy Spirit who indwells us all, uh, all of us who belong to Christ by faith. Now, in the previous chapters of Romans, starting way back in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul started laying out for us all the wonderful facets of Christ's victory over sin and over the curse of sin, which is death. The victory that belongs to all of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, that victory includes our justification, our reconciliation to God, our transfer from the domain or reign of sin and death to the reign of grace and life. It includes newness of life that we possess through our identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. It includes freedom from the mastery of sin, the mastery that previously controlled us. It includes our calling to live as slaves of righteousness and of God. It includes our release from and our death to the law of Moses, which could never make us righteous. And it includes victory over the influence of sin that still resides in our mortal bodies. And every single facet of the victory that we have been granted over sin and death is entirely and only in Jesus Christ. That's how we're made victorious. Now in chapter 8, we'll see what Paul has to say regarding how we actually come to lay hold of Christ's victory over sin and death here and now. How we come to truly manifest the righteousness of God even in the midst of the ongoing battle. Here's where we're going this morning. I've actually taken verses 1 to 13 and divided it into two messages. <laughs> Big surprise. I've also changed the title. The title in your bulletin says the mindset on the on the spirit, but that's just part of this discussion. The real overriding principle in this passage is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So that's the title. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, verses 1 through 4. And there are three parts I want to look at. First, backing up a little to chapter 7, we'll see that we still have a continued, condemnable connection with sin. But we are not condemned. And then we'll see that the source of our freedom from the law of sin and death is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We'll see that the requirement of the law has been fulfilled or is fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. And that's, that's both a past event and, an, and a present event. It's also future. And finally we'll see that the mindset on, we'll, we'll see uh, Paul's contrast between the mindset on the, the, the flesh versus the mindset on the Spirit. Next week, For the rest of this passage, it's all one piece, but we're going to do it in in two messages. Next week, we're going to see in verses 8 to 11 that we are in the Spirit, not in the flesh, if we belong to Jesus Christ, if the Spirit is in us and if Christ is in us. Verses 12 to 13, we are under obligation to live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul begins chapter 8. With some very, very good news. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now this is especially good news in light of what we saw last week in the second half of chapter seven. He painted in that picture of, uh, in that passage, a vivid picture of the ongoing struggle, the war as he calls it, between the law of sin and the law of God. Between the physical fleshly body and the spiritual inner man. He declared that we have God's guarantee of victory from the body of this death. And that that victory is through Jesus Christ our Lord. But immediately after proclaiming that victory, he finished out chapter seven by reiterating the struggle in which we are still engaged. He said, So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Now the verbs here are all present tense. Wretched man that I am. I am serving the law of God with my mind, but the law of sin with my flesh. Paul is saying that the battle between our true redeemed nature and our old condemned nature Persists the battle that he describes so vividly in chapter seven. So one thing that we should glean from that is that God's deliverance of us from these dying, sinning bodies through Jesus Christ can only be a gracious and undeserved gift because we continue to have a condemnable connection with sin. In him there is no sin. There is only light and no darkness. But deliver us, he does. And that deliverance is exactly what Paul now lays out for us in chapter 8. Even though sin continues to dwell in our mortal bodies, we who are in Christ Jesus are not condemned. And instead of condemnation, God has granted us freedom, real freedom from the law of sin and of death. Verse 2 is the foundation of the rest of this whole passage through verse 13. Paul says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. It's interesting. The word Spirit occurs 12 times in verses 1 through 13. And a total of 21 times in all of chapter 8. That's, more, that's almost twice as many times as in any other chapter of the New Testament. Sometimes, most of the time, I believe that word refers to the Holy Spirit in this passage. A couple of times it refers to the spirit of man. The word life, or the verb live, occurs six times in this same 13 verses. This passage is about the power of the Holy Spirit whose presence in us replaces death with life. Not just in the future, but now i don 't believe paul 's using the word law in verse two to uh, signify the law of Moses uh, or even to talk about a list of rules in some general sense. I think what he 's doing is essentially the same as what he did in the last part of chapter seven when he contrasted the law of God with the law of sin. I said last week that Paul used the term law in that in chapter 7 to refer to two contrasting principles or realms. But now that it's a week later, I think that that's too weak. I think Paul's talking about something that's more active than realms of experience. I believe he's using the word law in verse 2 to refer to what Douglas Moo calls a binding authority or power. And I think that's very much connected to what he said in chapter 5. Back in 5.17 and you can flip back, I don't have a slide for this, but 5.17, he said, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. The reign of death versus the reign of life. What I believe Paul is saying here in 8.2 is that we have been set free from the reign, the controlling power of sin and death, And we who are now freed from that power are instead under the controlling power of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, it is the Holy Spirit who causes us to actually experience that freedom from sin and death. The phrase, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, uh, is a beautiful thing. (laughs) I took it as the title of this message and the next because I believe, it again, that it's the theme of this entire passage. In Romans 6, verse 11, Paul commanded us to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now he's telling us that that life unto God, that freedom from sin that we possess through our identification with Christ, actually becomes our experience through the controlling power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And I think that's what Paul means by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit overcomes the law of sin and death in our flesh, and he brings us to experience the power of an undefeatable life. Not a life that comes from us, but the life of Christ in us. As Paul has already made clear over and over in this epistle, our redemption and transformation from the domain of death to the domain of life could never have been accomplished through law-keeping. In verses 3 and 4, he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Now, I believe the law that Paul's talking about in these verses, and we'll look, thoroughly at both of them but the law that paul's talking about in these two verses is once again the law of moses the same law that he so clear clearly in the previous chapters declared to be incapable of overcoming our sin and making us righteous in the eyes of god i consider verses three and four to be one of the great bellwether declarations in the new testament it's one of those statements that distills many other passages in both the Old and the New Testaments into one statement. We find in these two verses God's perfect solution to the failure of the law to make men righteous. And Paul's been heading here for quite some time. No matter how knowledgeable men become of the commandments of the law of Moses, no matter how diligently they strive to keep those commandments, law-keeping will not make men righteous. And the reason it will not is because of the weakness of our flesh. Instead of stirring us up to be righteous and to live righteously, the knowledge of God's commandments stirred up in us even more sin. But what the law could not do, God did. Now how did he do it? Paul tells us. He did it through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, verses 3 and 4. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How? Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. We're the ones who deserve condemnation, but He condemned the sin that's in our flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The reason there's no condemnation for us now is not because we didn't deserve condemnation. It's because Jesus came to the earth in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he didn't sin. He lived a perfect and sinless life, and then he died as the one and only perfect offering for the debt that we owed to God. Like the goat of the sin offering on the Day of Atonement, Jesus bore the full weight of our transgressions. And like the scapegoat on that same day, he carried our sins away to a solitary place. He separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. If you're not familiar with the Day of Atonement thing, spend some time in Leviticus 16. As a result, there is no condemnation for us. But his death accomplished even more than the removal of our condemned status before God. Because of Christ's death, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. There's two two aspects to that. It has been perfectly and completely fulfilled with regard to our position before God. Are standing in the eyes of God. That's justification. But it is now being fulfilled in us with regard to our practical righteousness. And that's sanctification. In verse 4, Paul tells us the purpose for which God sent his Son to condemn sin in the flesh. It was in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now, this is a critically important statement. And fulfilled is the operative word here. As we've already seen, and as I hope has been clear, (laughs) the perfect standard of the law of Moses has not been set aside. And it will never be set aside. The true standard of the law has always been God's own character, His holiness, His righteousness. We are called and required to be holy because our God is holy. Leviticus 19.2 That requirement isn't going to change. Paul's not saying here that the Holy Spirit has finally made us effective at law keeping, at keeping the letter of the law of Moses. That somehow the Spirit has finally made us able to keep the commandments that we couldn't keep before we had his indwelling presence. No. We have died to that approach. Paul made it clear in chapter 7 that we had to be released from the law of Moses. We had to die to the law in order to be joined to Christ. God didn't give us his indwelling Holy Spirit so that we could finally come to keep all of the specific commandments and ordinances and statutes of the Old Testament law that we were never able to keep before. He gave us his indwelling Holy Spirit so that we would finally manifest the character of God. That's the true law of God. And beloved, it's a far higher standard than the letter of the law of Moses. It's a standard that is fulfilled in us completely apart from the letter of the law. We don't even have to know the specific commandments and ordinance and statutes of the law of Moses in order for that far higher standard to be fulfilled in us. The value to us of knowing the specific commandments of the Old Testament law is to give us a more vivid picture of who our God is and how his character plays out in our relationship with him and with other people. It's principle by example. That's what it was intended to be in the first place. The word Torah doesn't even mean law. It means instruction. But that is a very great value indeed for us who know God, for us who are indwelled by the Spirit of God. We have died to the law of Moses as a set of rules that tell us how to become righteous. It wasn't intended to do that in the first place. It was intended to show us that we couldn't. And now we delight in the law of God precisely because we've died to law-keeping. When we look into the law now, we don't see rules. We see God. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that's exactly what he did. And again, the operative word is fulfill. The righteous requirement of the law is not fulfilled by us. It's fulfilled by Christ. And that's foundational to everything that is said in both the Old and New Testaments about how men come to be righteous in the eyes of God. Now, bear with me for a minute because I'm going to back up a little again and look at some Old Testament things. You know me well enough to know that that's what I do. When we studied the four major covenants in the Old Testament, we saw very clearly that the fulfillment of all of them ends up being accomplished by God rather than by God's people. Three of those great covenants are presented from the get-go as unilateral. That means they aren't two-sided agreements between God and men. They are promises made by God to men about what He has declared that He will do. Those three great covenants are the Abrahamic covenant the Davidic covenant and the New Covenant. And yes, the New Covenant is in the Old Testament. (laughs) The promises in those three great covenants are not dependent upon men in any way. They are dependent entirely and only upon God's own trustworthiness to do what he has said he will do. And that's why the wording in each of those three great covenants is pervaded by the presence of two words, I will. But there's a fourth covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. That one is presented as bilateral. That is that the benefits or the blessings of the covenant depend on what men do in response to what God has commanded. If Israel obeyed the commandments of the law, they would be blessed. But if they disobeyed those commandments, they would be cursed. And the passages on the cursing are a lot longer than the passages on the blessing because God knew what Israel would do. But there's a wonderful punchline in the study of the Mosaic Covenant. And that is that even that one great bilateral covenant ends up being unilateral because God is the one who ends up keeping both sides of the agreement. Both testaments declare that men are utterly incapable of keeping the law. Why is that? Well, Paul answered the question very directly in the chapters that preceded this one. He said, we're incapable of keeping the law because we share the sin nature of Adam. Not only do all of us fail to keep the commandments of the law, it's actually a lot worse than that. <laughs> the painful reality is that the sin that dwells within us responds to the commandments of God Not by acting righteously, but by acting more sinfully. (laughs) It's the wet paint paradigm. Paul said that knowing the commandment against coveting produced in me coveting of every kind. Romans 7, verses 7 and 8. The law didn't save us. The law condemned us so that every mouth would be closed and every man would be accountable to God in order that we would know our desperate need for our Savior, Jesus Christ. What we could never do, God did through the death of his Son. At the end of verse 4, Paul makes a really important statement about how the law comes to be fulfilled in us. And this statement is his transition, I believe, into everything else he'll say in this passage. He says, The goal or outcome for which God sacrificed his own Son was in order that the law might be Fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's getting into the how. It's not by law keeping, it's by Spirit walking. That's how God's character actually gets worked out in us and through us. Now, that's not a new idea for Paul. It's not a new idea in the letter to the Romans. In fact, it's a very old idea in Scripture. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 36, one of the two great declarations in the Old Testament of the new covenant. God said to Israel, I will take you from the nations, I'll gather you from the lands, I will bring you into your own land, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And then look at verse 26 of Ezekiel 36. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then he says, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Not, guys, not as keepers of the letter of the law, but as keepers of the true standard of the law, which is the character of God. We won't need rules to keep the commandments that God has given. God would do, God promised that he would do in his people what his people could never do by themselves. And that promise has been around for a long time. He would fulfill the requirement of the law in his people. That promise preceded the first coming of Christ by several hundred years, but it is fulfilled only in him. As has been the case at various points throughout the preceding chapters in Romans, there's both an already and a not yet aspect to what Paul is saying. Again, the requirement of the law has been already fulfilled in us positionally through Jesus Christ. We stand holy and righteous in God's sight, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's done. But Paul's focus here is about the practical fulfillment of the requirement of the law in us. God's gracious gift to us in Jesus Christ goes much further than securing our righteous standing in his eyes and ensuring our eventual deliverance from the very presence of sin. He frees us even now, day by day, from the controlling influence of the sin that still dwells in our mortal bodies. I reiterate here that the focus of chapters 6 through 8 in Romans is sanctification, not justification. Justification. He already nailed down the matter of our justification in chapters 3 through 5. But here he's focused on our walk. He's talking about our life in the Spirit today and our real practical freedom from sin and death. So he says Christ died in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. The word walk is very popular word in Paul's epistles. We saw it, in fact, in the worship this morning in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. The word walk refers to how we actually behave, how we conduct ourselves, how we live day by day, moment by moment. Paul's getting very practical here. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, these are just a, a few examples from his other epistles. He says, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord entreats you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And by the way, that command comes after three chapters of telling us what we have been given in Christ. Galatians 5, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And later in that same chapter, verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We came to have life by the work of the Spirit. And now we walk by the work of the Spirit. This is the same verb that he's used over and over in his epistles to speak of the path of our lives as believers. All right. If I've lost you thus far, I'd like to ask you to to stay with me carefully for this next little bit. And if your neighbor's dozing, maybe nudge him just a little bit. I don't say that disrespectfully. If a young man could doze off in the middle of one of Paul's sermons and fall off a wall to his death, then I'm surprised that people aren't sleeping to death in droves while I'm preaching. But, beloved, I believe this is of very great importance to how we live as believers. And I think there are churches all over this country that are largely populated by people who don't get this. When we first started our study of this great epistle, we saw that the overriding theme of Paul's letter to, letter to the Romans is the righteousness of God manifested in men. And what Paul's getting at here in chapter 8 is that that righteousness is not only imputed to us in the legal sense so that God sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is also imparted to us in practice. The reason our practical outworking of his righteousness is less than perfect, this side of heaven is because of the ongoing struggle that Paul talked about in chapter 7. But listen, brothers and sisters, the fact that his righteousness is not demonstrated in us imperfectly does not mean that it isn't real. And the fact that we continue to struggle against the sin that dwells in our bodies does not mean that we cannot experience real victory and power in that struggle here and now. That practical victory is our birthright as the children of God. And it's what Paul's talking about in this chapter. The Christian faith is not pie in the sky in the great by and by. It's not a get out of jail free card. It's not an insurance policy that we put in our back pocket waiting until the day that we die. The Christian faith is a life of victory and power and purpose right here and right now. And God calls us as believers to lay hold of that transforming reality to walk according to the Spirit. The day that God's righteousness will be perfectly manifested in us is the day that we're glorified, when God has freed us not only from the penalty and power of sin, but from the very presence of sin, and we stand in his presence and we are like him because we see him as he truly is. But for now, Paul's talking about how we lay hold of the righteousness of God even in the midst of that ongoing struggle against sin. We're supposed to be winning that battle by his resurrection power, not losing it. God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine. According to what? According to the power that is at work within us. We are not here to cope, brethren. We're not here to bide our time until we get to heaven. We are here to overcome. So let's look a little further at what Paul says about how we overcome. We just saw at the end of verse 4 that Paul talks about two different walks, the walk that is according to the flesh and the walk that is according to the Spirit. Now, in the next verses, he goes on to explain more practically what it means to walk according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. And it's here that he talks about our mindset. Verses 5 through 7. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And by the way, in verse 8, he goes on to say, For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And I think that's a transition that he's making to talking about those who are in the flesh versus in the spirit. We'll talk about that part next week. Paul again contrasts here. Two ways of living, two paths, one that is according to the spirit, or according to the flesh, the other that's according to the spirit. Now, I want to say I agree with those who point out that these verses are presented as descriptive rather than exhortational. In other words, they're not presented as commands or imperatives. Instead, they're contrasting that which is true of those who are according to the flesh versus those who are according to the spirit. But I do not agree with the conclusion that Paul's drawing a distinction here between unbelievers and believers, between the unsaved and the saved. He just said in verse 4 that the requirement of the law gets fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. Now in verses 5 through 8, he's explaining the difference between those two realms, that which is according to the flesh versus that which is according to the Spirit. So that we'll understand how we go from hanging out in the wrong realm or mode of living to actively, intentionally abiding in the right mode of living. One of those two modes is associated with the mindset on the flesh and the other with the mindset on the spirit. One moves us toward death and the other moves us toward real life. As we've seen before, there are only two paths. There's no middle ground. 18, let me try to explain how I arrived at this. 18 of the 19 times that the phrase according to the the flesh occurs in the New Testament, it's in Paul's writings. The only other occurrence is in the Gospel of John. Paul does not use this phrase according to the flesh the same way he uses the phrase in the flesh. A couple of verses after this in Romans 8 verse 9, he uses in the flesh to describe unbelievers as he did earlier in chapter 7, verse 5. But the phrase, according to the flesh, consistently in Paul's letters, refers to a way of thinking and acting that is associated with our mortal bodies and our earthly condition, a condition in which we still find ourselves, but which is no longer to be the focus of our attention, nor is it to determine our choices and our actions. He uses this phrase according to the Spirit, even of the disciples' knowledge of Christ during his earthly ministry, in Second Corinthians five sixteen, where he says, Therefore from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. In Romans nine, verses three through five, Paul refers to the Jews, the Israelites, as his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then still speaking of the Israelites, he says in verse 5, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. He's simply saying that in terms of the fleshly or physical realm, Christ is not a, he's a Jew, he's not a Gentile. Contrary to what some commentators say about these verses, in chapter 8, I believe that to live or to be or to walk according to the flesh is not equated by Paul with being an unbeliever. It is, in essence, to have the fleshly realm as your focus rather than the spiritual realm. And that's exactly what Paul says the believer must not do because that focus moves us in the direction of death instead of in the direction of life. In verses five to seven, Paul explains that the way we walk is inextricably tied to the way we think. Let's back up here. There we go. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Now this seems to be uh, to me to be very much in keeping with what Paul says in Colossians three. In verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3, right after talking about the futility of clinging to rules concerning outward behavior that have the appearance of wisdom but are of no value against fleshly indulgence, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And right after those verses, Paul tells us to consider the members of our earthly body to be dead to all the evil deeds that were associated with the old man and instead to put on those deeds that are associated with the new man. And the reason he tells us to practice, the basis on which he tells us to practice godly behaviors is precisely because we have laid aside the old man and we have put on the new man. It's the already and the not yet. It's just like what Paul's been saying in Romans 6 and 7. Be who you are, not who you aren't. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God because that's what's true of you as a child of God. Submit yourselves as slaves to God. Starve the old man and feed the new man. In the Colossians passage, our walk, putting off ungodly behavior and putting on godly behavior, follows from who we are in Christ and from our mindset, just as it does here in Romans 8. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. We all want life and peace, right? The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. James says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God, and whoever makes himself a friend of the world is the enemy of God? The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It is unable to subject itself to the law of God, which is the standard of God's own character. But the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. So, if our walk is so tied to our mindset, how do we get a mind that is set on the Spirit? How do you get your mind to be set on the things above rather than the things that are on the earth, all the craziness that's around us? Well, I don't think it's complicated. It may not be easy, but I don't think it's complicated. How do you come to know about the things that are above in the first place? How do you know the things of the Spirit of God? I don't have a slide for this, but I'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul talks about the spiritual things versus the natural or fleshly things. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, yet we, do not, uh, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. And look at verse 10. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. The Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man, which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. And then verse 12 is amazing. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might know. The things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual praises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. How? Spiritual words combined with spiritual thoughts. Where do you find the spiritual words? There's only one place. There's only one place. This is the Word of God, and you know what? It's the words of God. God intends for us to know it. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know His character. He wants us to know the truth about ourselves. He wants us to know what He's done about the problem of our sin. And He wants to instill in us a gratitude that just overflows because we get this stuff. And the only way that we get there, the only way we get that mind that is set on the spirit (laughs) is to expose ourselves to that which God has declared about himself. When we do, we'll be just like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. We'll be overwhelmed with beholding God and we'll be ready to do what he tells us to do. Dear Father, We don't want to coast through this life squandering our usefulness to you. We want to be runners and not spectators, effective doers of your word and not hearers only. We thank you for the life that we who believe in Jesus Christ enjoy because of his sacrifice in our place. And we thank you that that life belongs to us not only in the future, but even now. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we will know what we have been given and we will know how to truly walk in the life that has been purchased for us at the cost of your own son's blood we ask this in his name and for his sake amen